Did you know it's Palm Sunday? No palms, I got rocks. Which makes maybe no sense at all. I hope you got one. If you didn't, there's some in the buckets around. We'll get there eventually. Um, we've been doing this thing with rocks for the last several weeks. Uh, hope it's been at least meaningful in some ways. Today's the last week we'll deal with these rocks, and, and these have a unique, well, I hope we can see today the unique meaning they have associated with Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, as you know, begins Holy Week, begins the last week of Jesus' life, and we celebrate the entry of Jesus, his triumphal entry, as it's often called, into Jerusalem. We're going to look at the account of Palm Sunday, or his triumphal entry, I should say, in Luke chapter 19. The verses, most of them will be up on the screen, um, but if you have a Bible and want to turn there, we'll jump around a little bit as well. Uh, Luke chapter 19 actually begins a little later in this chapter. It begins, is it Luke chapter 19? Yes, verse 28. Oh, that's Matthew chapter 19. I'm like, that does not make any sense. I guess when we're in the right spot. It's a good thing I put the verses on the screen so I can keep up too, yes? Verse 28, I hope. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, I never noticed this phrase before, after Jesus had said this. As I was reading, you know, we, we usually kind of have these ideas, particularly about well-known accounts in Scripture, uh, what they kind of involve. And so it's easy to, well, at least for me, it's easy to kind of gloss over some of the things, but I, I noticed that this time. What had Jesus just said? I don't have these on the screen, but it's interesting if you look at verse 27. If you're there in your Bibles, you can do that if I can eventually get there. Let me read what verse 27. It ends Jesus' telling of what's called in, in uh, the parable of the Minas. It's a similar parable. You've heard it where uh, the king goes away or the leader goes away, gives 10 minas to three servants, one invest the minas, gets 10 more, he's praised. One invests the minas, gets five more, he's praised. One doesn't do anything with the, the things. He buries them. He knows his master is a hard man, and he wanted to at least have that with him. And it says toward the end of that, that parable Jesus is telling, actually, I'll back up to verse 26. He replied, it tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. And then listen to verse 27. But those enemies of mine who do, did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And after he said this, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. I never put that together. What do we think of when we think of the triumphal entry? We think Jesus riding in Jerusalem. We think of the crowds that come out. We call it Palm Sunday because Scripture records that that they would lay the palms and wave the palms in front of them. We'll read the rest of the account in just a minute. And part of the dynamic of this particular event in his life is that there is the desire of Israel to be liberated from Roman oppression and to potentially find a Messiah, a king, who would be their leader, who would sit enthroned, as they would imagine, as an independent Israel, an Israel that was no longer oppressed by these outsiders. And perhaps some of the thinking that went into the celebration that day was that 
Jesus would be that particular one. And so after he had told this story, now I know the crowds didn't hear this. He's a ways away. He has to go to Jerusalem. But at the very least, the disciples would have been around to pay attention to those words. What must they have been thinking as the day unfolded? It says in verse 29, Scripture goes on and tells us this. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him. The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Now that must have been a remarkable thing. I don't know if... What would this be like? I guess in our day, we don't have colts. We don't have horses to ride around on. We have, yeah, you've seen them, I guess. Dodge colts. Yeah, we got to find the particulars. Um, but could you imagine if you're there and somebody comes up, somebody you don't know, and starts getting in your car? And you say, hey, like most of us would what? What are you doing? Why are you messing with my car? And they said, well, the Lord needs it. Would you say, well, then okay. Here are the keys. Maybe it's not the best analogy, but there is something of that 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 we could relate to. It seems kind of striking when you look at it in those terms that that there was this idea that that would just be allowed. But in, in this account, that's what happens. Now, Luke doesn't point it out, but Matthew points out particularly this happened because it was to fulfill a prophecy. It was to make known something, or to, to come about something that happened in the Old Testament. It's actually in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9 is where we find that. I think these, these verses are going to pop up on the screen. I'm pretty sure I put them in the, the show. Let's see. Verse 9 is, hey, yes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king. There's that word again. We saw it in verse 27. Now we see it again here in Zechariah. Your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, why is this significant? Why would this be important? Certainly because Jesus is fulfilling it, but it's what comes next in verse 10 that also has meaning here. Verse 10 of Zechariah 9 says this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This Old Testament prophecy that Jesus acted and Scripture tells us fulfilled was fulfilled in his actions also brings in mind that this one coming into town would be the kind of king that would do exactly what Israel would want, would liberate them and would bring bring peace and the freedom from oppression from their captors, in this case, Rome. And, And that particular city at that particular time was ready for a king in fact we know from luke chapter 22 and maybe from your experience in church world otherwise that this all happens around the time of the jewish passover the jewish passover one of the the biggest feasts that israel would celebrate it's one that this year the calendar kind of coordinates with easter we know that that's how it was in that day Um, and the passover feast remembers the events in particular of israel's liberation from oppression when Moses, as their leader, speaks to Pharaoh, 
and says, let my people go. And of course, you recognize the plagues that followed as the plagues came. The last plague, the one that gives us the name, Passover, where the angel of death came and took the firstborn, except for those who had the blood put along their doorpost. The angel of death would then pass over those houses. And they were liberated through this and so every year this became a festival god said i want you to remember this day i want you to remember liberation from oppression i want you to celebrate it and and still observant jews and even some that are culturally so observe the passover every year as a way to recall god's victory on their behalf and in this day in jesus's day jerusalem itself would swell with pilgrims coming to celebrate the passover in fact, on Friday, when we go through our Good Friday service, we'll use some of the elements of the Passover. And one of the things that is said each year in a Passover celebration, it kind of ends with, and next year in Jerusalem. Because that's the, that's the goal, to be in the holy city, to celebrate in Jesus' day, and even today in ours, that's still a part of it. And so they would go to the holy city where the temple was to have their particular uh, Passover sacrifice offered there and blessed there and Jesus comes into town when the atmosphere in Jerusalem is celebrating this festival of liberation and when in the back of their minds and maybe not so far back kind of toward the front of their minds the Jews are thinking we can't wait for God to do it again for God to send this one who will lead us into into the place where we would expect would liberate us from Roman oppression. And so with all of that going on, Jesus comes into town, fulfilling this prophecy, riding on that cult, and the people respond, well, bigly. Is that okay to say? It tells us in Luke chapter 19, as, as Jesus comes in after we left off, I forget where we were about the time we left off. Where were we? About verse 34, verse 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. The disciples, not only those that we think of as the disciples, but the greater crowd line the road. And they welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem. They, they shouted these praises. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. These things that were reminiscent, again, of the Old Testament prophecies. We looked as part of our series on stones at Psalm 118, which is where the first of those two quotes is from. And if you remember, it says there, and we traced it through the New Testament, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes, it says. And so they quote all of this. That, that's their, their scripture. That's their their revelation from god their hope what they they kind of built their ideas of who god was and what he would do and they they hearken back to that that god is going to fulfill all of these great promises he has made the prophecies he had he had given and now in jesus they see potentially the one who will be that who fulfills them now because of all this 
because of the Passover idea, because of how the Jews in Jerusalem and the crowds that would gather would be thinking and feeling about the Passover, about Rome in particular, Rome also wanted Israel to know they were aware of what's going on. And so often, and some people speculate that maybe even at the same time, while Jesus is coming into Jerusalem from the east of the city, from the west comes another bit of a parade, this one a little more organized, this one a little more impressive, at least in this sense. Uh, The Roman army comes in, Pilate probably himself coming in from the west. He would be, as you would expect, accompanied by all of the might and power of Rome, the soldiers marching, off, not on their colts, not on their young, their young colts, but on their full-grown steeds with all of the armor, all of the, the trappings of power. Why would they do this? Because Israel had before rebelled against Rome. In fact, it wasn't so long ago that there was a rebellion of sorts. And in response to that, uh, I think it's over a thousand people were crucified by the Romans to quell, to squelch this rebellion, this uprising of the Jews around Jerusalem. So with that in mind, Rome wanted to come in and let Israel know we're still in charge here. You can have your religious festival. You can have your fun. You can do what you need to do, but we're still running the show. In fact, I think there's a picture up here of kind of the the area of Jerusalem. And one of the things that that is interesting about that area in the time of Jesus, uh, if it comes up, I can point it out to you. Oh, nope, that's not it. There it is. Okay, you see the temple there. Everybody see the temple? Okay, good. You see kind of the northwest corner of the temple, those four kind of columns? That is the Antonio Fortress. That was basically connected to the temple and was a place where Rome almost directly oversaw what's happening in the temple, right connected to it. There was this idea that we're just this close. In fact, I've, I've said in other contexts, one of the things that the Romans did was they locked up the high priest's garments. And for the holy festivals of Israel, when those garments were needed, the Jews had to go to the Romans and ask for, request, the very garments that the priest would wear. As a reminder, Rome is really in charge of all of this. Rome is really the one who's running this show. And so in that very maybe tense context of Passover among people who hoped and looked to God as the one who would overthrow this Roman oppression, Pilate or whoever was in charge at the time might march in to that city with all of the might of Rome at his disposal to say to them, we're here too, don't get any ideas. So, sounds like a fun place to be, huh? You could see that there was this sense for the Israel of hope, but also the reality. Uh, I don't know if this is such a good idea. Maybe it explains how what we just read of Palm Sunday, these cries of Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, turn so quickly to cries of crucify him. 
crucify him. In fact, someone defined leadership something like this. Leadership is being able to know the rate of disappointment the people who follow you can handle, which is an interesting way to look at leadership. And for some, they say for Jesus in this last week of his life, the rate of disappointment seemed to go faster than they were ready to handle. That the, the excitement of Palm Sunday, the excitement of this moment of hopefulness, this, the excitement of, hey, he's come and he's going to do for us what we've always hoped and always wanted to be done. Maybe he's the one. All the others have disappointed us. Maybe he's the one that can upset Rome in the way that we hope very quickly turns to reality that maybe he's not here to do what we wanted. Maybe he's not going to do the things that we had hoped. And then those cries of Hosanna turn very quickly to cries of crucify. One thing that's interesting that ends this account in Luke, it's part of the story that you may be familiar with, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. That's a pretty interesting picture, isn't it? I mean, maybe because for the last several weeks we've looked at stones and traced some places in Scripture that mention it. It's just been more on my mind lately maybe you as well, but I find it interesting that that was the word, that was the picture he used. One of the things that you would notice were you to go to Israel and go to the Mount of Olives is that on the Mount of Olives, there are lots of stones, not just because it's a very rocky and arid place, but because it also happens to house a huge cemetery. In fact, that was the picture that was shown a minute ago. You can throw it back up there again. That's a lot of stones, yeah? a little bigger than the ones that were in the buckets around today. Um, it's a very popular cemetery. Uh, it's been there about 3,000 years. Jews have asked to be buried on the Mount of Olives. Why is that, you ask? I'm so glad you asked. Maybe you didn't ask, but I'm going to answer it anyway. We know that Israel focuses on Jerusalem as its holy city. And if we were to go back to the days of Solomon, when he built the temple, we would see in the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5 particularly, the dedication of the temple. And one of the things that happens at the dedication, much like happened in the tabernacle in the wilderness, is the glory of God comes down on the temple and fills it. So much so that 2 Chronicles chapter 5 verse 14 says the priests can't even do their job. The glory of God is there. They just kind of have to stand down in that moment. Remarkable that that happens. And, and so in their history, Israel looked at the temple in Jerusalem as the place where God sort of literally dwelt there among them, much like the tabernacle had that same meaning. And at times in visible ways, they would see the manifestation of God's glory. Well, you know, if you know Israel's history, or maybe you should say, you know, if you know humanity's history, we have a way in our lives of sort of, what's the right word? Straying from God. God says to Israel, you will be my people and I will be your God. God says to them, if you worship me and me alone, and these are loose paraphrases, obviously, of some things, I will, I will bless you. But if you don't, well, 
it's not going to work out so good. And Israel, in their history, had moments where they didn't. They didn't ascribe allegiance to God. And the book of Ezekiel, fascinating Old Testament book, uh, talks about the fact that this glory of God that once dwelt in the temple leaves. In Ezekiel chapter 10, it, it tells us that the, the glory that was in the temple rises up and goes out to the threshold of the temple in verse 4. And then in verse 18 and 19 of Ezekiel chapter 10, it says that the glory departs and goes to the east gate of the city, just outside the temple, on the eastern side. And then we would go to Ezekiel chapter 11. It says in verse 22 that the glory of God moves from the east gate of the temple and goes to the top of the Mount of Olives. Where did we start this journey with Jesus? Well, Luke chapter 19, after he said these things, he left there, went from Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. This place where this cemetery is, where Jesus starts his triumphal entry, is significant in Israel's history because that was, for Ezekiel, the last place that he saw the glory of God as it departed the temple. And elsewhere in Scripture, Haggai and, and other places, it says that the glory of God will one day return to Jerusalem, will return to the temple. And so one of the things that the Jews have wanted in the 3,000 years they've used this cemetery is to have front row seats to that moment when everything is right, turned right, that's wrong. In fact, the idea is that the resurrection, all of these graves are pointed with their feet toward the temple so that when they rise up they're already facing the right way isn't that interesting it's just one of those historical things for for israel and so they have this understanding that at least those who are aware that god had kind of left them and they saw it practically demonstrated by the fact at this point in their history the romans are in charge they're desperate for that moment when God will set right what's wrong, even to the point that if they die and everything's wrong, they want to be kind of right there so they can see that moment when God restores what has been wrong. And Jesus comes in down that same hill toward that same temple and tells the religious leaders, if they hush even the stones will cry out now i think maybe the stones he had in mind have i qualified that enough might have been those graves right along the road that he was walking on see almost as if to say they they got the right idea and so he walks into the city, surrounded by all these people. And the Pharisees would say that. Interesting ending to this account in Matthew. Matthew chapter 21 is the same account, just different focus on what he points out. Um, but in verse 10, kind of summarizes what happens here. Matthew 21 verse 10, I think these are in the, on the screen, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? It's a good question, right? 
Now, obviously, some went out knowing who it was, but others that were stirred, unnerved, agitated. Why? Maybe because the Romans are here, and there's a little unrest that seems to be percolating among the Jews, and we don't want to get caught in the middle of this again. But the big question that all of them had is who's causing the ruckus? Who's causing this unnerving of the city? Verse 11 goes on. The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You know what that reminds me of? At least that part. When Jesus asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? You remember what they said, right? They kind of gave, I'll call it the Sunday school answer. You're Elijah, you're one of the prophets, John the Baptist. These ideas, kind of of the, the ideas that in a religious sense, we see you're doing something religious, and and so we're going to give you a religious answer. And then he asked a more pointed question, right? Not who do they, the people, say that I am. Who do you say that I am? We only get one answer. We only get one person that speaks up. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you. You didn't make that up. You didn't come up with it on your own. There's something going on here. And he gave him a new name. Remember what it was? This is the hint, right? Peter, the rock. And then he goes on and he says this. And on this rock, I will build my church. Interesting. There's a lot of rocks in the Bible. Have you noticed stones now now we say unlike there's the whole strain that thinks the rock the catholic church primarily espouses the rock is peter himself he's the rock that's in mind there Um, but we would instead point to the confession peter made the rock upon which the church is built is the person of jesus the one the builders rejected that has become the chief cornerstone he's that confession that Peter offered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, This this sense that Peter got it. He knew who he was talking to. He, in that moment, the Spirit revealed to him in a way that that's the only explanation that could be offered, that this man that we've followed around for this time is more than just another wise teacher. He's the promised Messiah of God, the anointed one. And he makes that confession. And it strikes me when I see on the heels of his triumphal entry into Jesus, into Jerusalem, the same question stirring about Jesus. Who is he? And the answer seems more like the who do they say that I am? Rather than Peter's confession of the Messiah. And I remember Jesus' words. If I tell them to be quiet, even the rocks, the stones, 
will cry out. And I think about in my own life, maybe you too, how many times it's the answer that I've offered when the opportunity has arisen has been more like this than more than like Peter. You know, we can kind of wax philosophical about Jesus. We can talk about him almost as if we hold him at an arm's length in conversation. Like we're we're talking about this idea, this concept, this religious teaching rather than this person whose life and death and resurrection form the basis of our salvation. And I wonder if, while we don't have the Pharisees around saying, hey, let's just keep that quiet, if we don't hear the echo of their voice from a couple thousand years ago in those moments when we get the opportunity to speak, thinking we just, without standing in front of them, do the same thing. We kind of keep it quiet. So I, I want to give you this rock for a couple reasons. One, I picked granite because it seems like a gravestone kind of rock to me. I don't know why. To remind you, of that hill on the Mount, those graves on the Mount of Olives that Jesus walked past when he said, even the rocks will cry out. But also to remind you of the confession of Peter. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I've said every week, you can do a couple things, pretty much every, last week I changed the rules a little bit. But for the first three weeks, or two weeks, I said with this rock you can do a couple things with it, and we're going to do the same thing today. We've had the cross up here for the last month or so. And some of you in the course of the weeks have brought your rocks up and, and laid them at the foot of the cross. And maybe if for you this rock reminds you of the Mount of Olives and your tendency to listen to that, hey, just hush up. Keep him at arm's length. Don't, don't speak boldly for him. Maybe today in this time of response, your response would be to say, yes, God, I recognize that in myself, and I want to lay it at the foot of the cross and ask your forgiveness and ask for you to embolden me to speak for you when I get the opportunity. Maybe that's not the place you want to put it. Maybe we want to take it with you. Put it somewhere so that you'll see it as a reminder that this, this rock represents maybe the confession of Peter. It's the rock upon which the church is built, the, the person of Jesus Christ, and what he has done for you by his life and death and resurrection, the forgiveness of your sins, the promise of salvation, maybe this rock stands for those things for you and a reminder to be ready to speak up. Not to, to give that arm's length answer, oh, he's this or that, but to give the personal. He is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's my savior. He's my Lord. He's the one who died for my sin. And all the other things that scripture reveals about our savior. I'm going to invite our band to come on up, get ready, and our singers as well. The song today is Come As You Are. 
It's a good thing, right? That you can come as you are. Because here's what I know about me and most of us. I are not what I want to be. And maybe one of the ways I'm not what I want to be is in those moments where it's easier to keep silent than to speak up. You know, we talk about statistics here and there, and those are fascinating to talk about the number of people, even in our own community, that are lost or unchurched. People that you are neighbors with and work with and see in the grocery or in the drugstore, wherever else you frequent the restaurants and the like. There are a lot of people that you contact, come in contact with every day. My, my thought is, particularly around Easter, have you noticed that people sort of have this, well, maybe more awareness of the things of faith? Just kind of everywhere. It might be not necessarily in a positive way, but on a magazine cover or, or mentioned in different places. You know, it's one of the, the, the weeks in the church year where more people go to church. Christmas and Easter become those, those two times. So there's an awareness. So I think it's appropriate today that we use this time of response to think, how might we in this week, when people's mind might be attuned to these sorts of things, use that openness, find those opportunities to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand. And as we sing, if you want to bring your rock and lay it at the foot of the cross, if you want to come and kneel at the altar, if you want to come and, and talk with or pray with me, I'd, I'd welcome that opportunity as well. You take these minutes to respond in the ways that God might have prompted your heart.